Let's turn together to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. Have you ever been told, you ought to know better? (laughs) Did your mama ever say that to you? You know better. You know better than that. You should know better. Well, that's actually our subject this morning, knowing better. It's actually going to be a prayer that we would indeed know better. We are in Ephesians chapter 1, and we just finished up where Paul spent 202 words marveling at the wonders of salvation. This 202-word sentence, the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament, where Paul just gets carried away praising God for the wonders of salvation. And now he's going to move from doxology to prayer. He's going to move from, from praise to a petition, and he's going to pray for and about the Ephesians And he's going to do it again in another crazy long sentence. This time 169 words. One long sentence. Verses 15 through 23. It's all one sentence in the Greek New Testament. And it's full of relative clauses and prepositional phrases and adverbial participles and oh my, oh my, all the rest. But it is a power-packed prayer. And it is a prayer that could be prayed for any believers or any church. It's a prayer for you and for me as well. We ought to pray this prayer for our church and for ourselves. So let's take a look. We'll just read it all first. First of all, and again, one sentence in the Greek New Testament. And then we'll come back and take it a nibble at a time. But Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15. Paul says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Boy, what a prayer. Well, if you have your bulletin, there's that listening guide on the back panel. So let's start, first of all, with the thanksgiving. Paul knows these people well. He is very invested in these folks. But remember, Paul is in prison, and he hasn't seen these people probably for for five, six, seven years. And they weigh on his heart. He prays for them often. He prays for them regularly. And he has recently received a good report. He's got good news from Ephesus. And so he mentions that here, and he prays thanksgiving for two things about this church. One, he is thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So he's thankful, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among them. Now that construction, the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, the faith in the New Testament could speak of several different things. One, it could speak of saving faith. The, sa- the, the faith by which we are saved. And by the way, that's how you're saved By grace, through faith, you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ. You put your faith in his death to atone for your sins. You put your faith in his resurrection to bring you life. 
You trust Him to save you from your sins and to save your soul and to take you to heaven. You're saved by grace through faith. But that's probably not what Paul is talking about here. I'm so glad to hear that y'all are saved. No, he, he knows they're saved. Sometimes when you have the definite article in front of faith, the faith, it speaks of the corpus of Christian doctrine and teaching, the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. So the Christian faith as, as an entity, as it were. That may be what Paul is talking about, but probably what he means here is an ongoing faith, a faithfulness. You guys have an ongoing active faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is bearing out in your daily lives. Faith and faithfulness. And in light of the rest of the of the letter and in light of his history with the churches at Ephesus, that's probably what he's talking about there. Their faith and faithfulness. Then he's also thankful for their love for all the saints. That's what he says. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. Here is a church or a group of churches that have a reputation for loving the people of God. What a good reputation to have. They are a loving people. Now, later on in this letter, Paul's going to talk about the the mystery and the miracle of how God can bring Jews and Gentiles together in one body, the church. And that's what we have in view in the church at Ephesus. When Paul went to Ephesus, he started preaching in the synagogue before he went to the Gentiles. And so in the church at Ephesus, there are Jewish Christians. There are folks who who are Yahweh worshipers, Jews, who worship the God of Israel, who followed the law of Moses and lived out that lifestyle, and now they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And in that same church, you have people who are Gentiles who have come out of a pagan lifestyle. They worshiped the goddess of Artemis in the temple there in Ephesus. Or some of them are former magicians. Remember, they burned up all their magic books. They are former magicians. They lived a licentious lifestyle, temple prostitution, and all the rest. So you can think of two groups of people who are more apart, more unlike, and yet God has brought them together, and these folks have a love for all the saints. They have a love for one another in the body of Christ. Now, You already know biblical love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It is a way of acting. It's a way of treating people. It is a deliberate, active choice to love. These people have a love for all the saints. They have a reputation for it, and Paul is so thankful. So there's his thanksgiving. Now he moves on to intercession. Now he starts praying for these these believers, and here comes the ask. Here's the petition in verse 17. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. So he's praying that God would give them a spirit of wisdom, or it could be rendered that God would, that God would give them, that the Spirit would give them wisdom and revelation. Either way, it's going to come from God. God will send the Spirit to give them wisdom and revelation and The Spirit of God reveals the secrets of God. We don't figure out the wisdom of God on our wisdom. God reveals himself. So either way, so he's praying that God would give them wisdom and revelation so that they would grow in the knowledge of him, that they would grow in the knowledge of God, that they would know him better. So there's the ask. There's the petition. Paul is praying for the Ephesians that they would know God better. 
In John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. That is eternal life, to know God. Now, there are some things you know because you read about it. You read about it in the book. That's book learning. You know, somebody told you about it. You heard about it. Now you know it. There are other things you know because you've been there, done that. You lived it. You experienced it. That's firsthand knowledge. That's the knowledge we're talking about here, to know God, not because you read about him, but because you know him. You've experienced him. You have a relationship with God that shapes and defines your entire life. That's what it means to know him. That's what it means to be saved. My question for you this morning is, do you know him? Do you know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent? That's eternal life. Well, Brother Jeff, I... I joined the church when I was seven years old. Well, wonderful. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? <laughs> well, I got baptized when I was 15. Good. Do you know him? Well, I'm a Sunday school teacher. Wonderful. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? See, you could, be, you could do all those church things. You could be ordained. You could have a Ph.D. in theology and not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know him in a personal, vital, dynamic relationship? That's what it means to be saved. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says one of the most terrifying things recorded in the New Testament. He talks about judgment day, and he says, And on that day many will say unto me, Lord, 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 have we not done all these things in your name? Nominal Christians who did all kinds of nominal Christian stuff in the name of Jesus. And Jesus said, And I'll say unto them, Depart from me, I never what? knew you i never knew you. you didn't know me and i didn't know you you were doing all that religious stuff i never knew you you didn't know me do you know jesus and once you do know him we are to grow in that knowledge of him we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ we're to grow in that relationship with him that's what paul is praying for these folks that they would grow in their in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus, that they would know him better, that God would give them wisdom, that he would reveal himself to them, all to the point that they would know him better. A man named Grant Osborne said, the goal of all spirit-given wisdom and enlightenment is to know God. That's a prayer request, that you would know him better. Now, as they get to know God better, then they would know better. They need to know some things that are better. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So now he prays that the eyes of their heart would be opened, that they would be enlightened so that they might know better. So know God better so that they might know better. Now, in our language and culture, we talk about the seed of your personality, who you are, it, it's all in your mind. I mean, that's, we understand the brain better than they did once upon a time, and that's, that's reflected in our language. So we think, you know, who you are, it's all up here, right? Who you are, your personality, your volition, your ability to make decisions and all that, it's all up here in your mind. But then we still speak about emotions as being from the heart, don't we? And that's silly because we know better, but that's how we talk. That, we, you know, I love you with all my heart. Oh, don't break my heart. You know, that we, that, that we feel emotions in our heart. Now, in the Bible, it's a little bit different, especially in the Old Testament. 
In the Bible, you have the language of the seat of personality being in the heart, the seat of volition. What we call the mind, they would say, is in the heart. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And then the seat of emotions in biblical terminology is in the bowels. It's in your guts. It's in your kidneys. That's the language of the Bible. That would put a whole new spin on Valentine's Day cards, wouldn't it? <laughs> Honey, I love you with all my guts. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, I love you not with one kidney, but with both kidneys. Now, that's commitment right there. I love you with both kidneys. Paul says, I pray that God would open up the eyes of your heart, the seat of volition, your personality. We would say mind. God would open up your heart and mind so that you might see better, fill, fill you with light, enlighten you so that you would see certain spiritual realities better, that you would know better. It kind of reminds me of Elisha and Elisha's servant. Let me show you an amazing story. Hang on to Ephesians. Let's go way back in the Old Testament to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. There's a prophet of God named Elisha, the king of Assyria, or Aram, is mad at this prophet of God named Elisha because Elisha keeps warning his enemies about what he, he wants to do. And so the king of Aram, the king of Assyria, is going to send his army to get a hold of Elisha. Go arrest this feller. So in 2 Kings chapter 6, again, the king of Syria, Aram, sends his army to arrest the prophet of God. In 2 Kings 6, and look in verse 14. So he, the king of Aram, sent horses and chariots and a great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. This would be the, the, the town of Dothan. So the Syrian army has surrounded this town all to get one man, the man of God. Now when the attendant of the man of God, that's Elisha's servant, when he had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. That's, that's a bad sign, isn't it? It's too early in the morning for this. He gets up to go make coffee or something, and behold, here's this army surrounding the city, army and chariots. And so he comes to his master, Elisha, the prophet of God. Alas, my master, what shall we do? What we're going to do, this, this doesn't look good. We've got a whole army surrounding the town, and they're coming for you. So he answered, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And you can just imagine Elisha's servant going, I count one, two, and there's a whole army out there. No, the those who are with us are more than those who are with them. What are you talking about? Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There was a spiritual reality that the servant was unaware of. Those angels, those spiritual beings, that spiritual army was there. He didn't see it. He didn't know it. He wasn't aware, but Elisha was. Lord, open his eyes and let him see that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And later on, he's going to turn right around and say, Lord, close their eyes. Open his eyes. Close their eyes so that they don't see. And that's, that's another story. That's kind of what we have here in Ephesians chapter 1. Lord, 
open their eyes that they might see certain spiritual realities better. And he's going to pray for three things. Now, he's not asking the Lord to give them these three things. They already have them. He's not asking God to reveal three new truths. They already know these things. It's already revealed truth. He's praying that they would see these things better so that they might appreciate them better and appropriate these realities better in their own lives. Ditto for you and for me. Here are three things that you and I need to see better (laughs) so we might know better and that we might appropriate these things and live better in light of these truths. Now, what are the three things that Paul wants his readers to see better? Well, he tells us the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So let's take a look at these three realities, these three spiritual realities that Paul prays his readers, include us, that we might see these things better. Again, we don't need to be given these things. We already have them. We don't even need to know these things. We already know them. We just need to see them better, know them better. What are they? Number one, the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. Now, biblical hope, as I've told you many times before, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. We use that word hope like a wish. I hope it doesn't rain. I hope it stops raining. I hope it warms up. I hope, I hope, I hope. I'm wishing. That's wishful thinking. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation that God's going to act. A confident expectation that God's going to do what God said he's going to do. A confident expectation. Not a wishful thinking. A confident expectation. The hope of his calling. His calling here would be the extension of his past calling. We saw he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Well, that's in eternity past. And in eternity future, that calling is going to be fulfilled, spelled out. In other words, his future for us. The hope of his calling is our future in Christ. The hope of his calling. That would include the Lord's return. Jesus is coming Again, that's our hope, our confident expectation. He's coming again for his bride, the church. Jesus is going to raise the dead. That's, that's our blessed hope. We don't expect to die and stay dead. We expect that those who believe in Christ will never die. And one day, the dead in Christ shall rise. And the corruptible will be raised incorruptible. Corruption will be raised incorruption. Perishable will be raised imperishable. That's our hope glorification when christ who is our life is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory that is part of our hope the hope of his calling there's going to be a judgment day and there's going to be a bema seat judgment and he will judge his people according to what we have done in the body whether it be good or bad and there will be rewards in heaven for those who have been faithful servants of the Lord Jesus to his glory in this life you can get rich toward god you can lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven that's the hope of his calling we'll spend eternity with the lord forever that's our hope the hope of his calling now we already know all that i didn't tell you anything new You knew all that. I I, I assume you already knew that. It's not new truth. That's previously revealed truth. But we need to see it better and appropriate it better and live it better. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened, that you would know better. See the hope of his calling. Not only the hope of his calling, but the riches of his inheritance. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now that's the third time we've hit that word inheritance in Ephesians chapter 1. We haven't really snagged on it up until now, but it's worth a second look. This is the third time. Here's what I want you to see about this inheritance. One, we believers, Christians, have an inheritance in Christ. We have an inheritance in Christ. Um, Down in verse 14, the Holy Spirit of promise is given as a pledge of our inheritance. We talked about that last Sunday. Earnest money, down payment, initial payment, initial installment. The Holy Spirit is a pledge, a down payment of what is to come. He is the down payment, earnest money on our inheritance in God. Paul says in Romans 8, if we're children of God, we are heirs of God. And if we are heirs of God, then we are joint heirs or fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs get an inheritance. We have an inheritance. First Peter says that you have an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We have an inheritance in him. Praise the Lord. But that's not all. We are an inheritance to him. That's interesting. Not only do we have an inheritance in Christ, we are an inheritance to God. That's what we have in view in verse 18. The hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Not our inheritance in him, his inheritance in the saints. Now, move back up to to verse 11. Uh, Yeah. In verse 11, we didn't really talk about this before, but this verse could go either way, either of those directions. In him, in Christ, boy, there's our phrase, in him, in Christ, in the beloved, in Jesus also, we have obtained an inheritance. Well, there we go. We have an inheritance in Christ. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. But that could also be rendered in him, We are made an inheritance. We are made a heritage to him. It it can go either way. Now, in what way are we an inheritance to him? Remember, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He adopted us as sons. He predestined us to adoption as sons. He has redeemed us by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has purchased us to himself. He has sealed us. And we belong to him that he might inherit us. We are his inheritance. This is the language of the Old Testament where the people of Israel were called the inheritance of God, God's own possession. They are his people. We have that same idea over here. So we have an inheritance in Christ and we are an inheritance to him. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened that you might see better who you are in Christ and what you mean to God and what you have in Christ, who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ, and apply it to life. And then thirdly, he prays that the eyes of their heart would be open so that, that they would see, in verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, so that they would see the, God's power toward us who believe. 
God's power toward believers. You might see the greatness of his power. Now, in verse 19, there are four different words for power. Four different words, just in, in this one verse. His power toward us. That's, that's the word dunamis, where we get dynamite from, our word dynamite. Just raw power. Shows up over 100 times in the New Testament. These are in accordance with the working. If you could see that word in Greek, you'd say, well, that looks like the word energy. Well, there you go. It's where we get our word energy from. It is inward propulsion of power, his inworking, his working in us according to the strength. This is the word we get autocrat from. It is the strength, the power to control, conquer, govern, rule, autocrat, that kind of idea. He has that kind of strength of his might. This is, this is capability that is derived from strength. You can do it because you've got the power, the strength to get it done. The strength of his might. Four different words just in one verse, all talking about the power of God. And then he, 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 he shows us what this power looks like. Now, as we talk about the power of God toward us who believe, one, we can talk about saving power. We, we, sing, the, we sing the praise song, he's, he's mighty to save. He has the power to save. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. So he has the power to save us, to rescue us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his own beloved son. There's saving power, but then there's also sanctifying power. The power to equip us, the power to energize us, the power to enable us to live the lives he wants us to live to his glory, to live holy lives. We're going to hear that in chapter 3. When he says to him who is exceeding abundantly able to do, uh, to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, the power to live holy lives for him. Now listen to a man named Harold Hayner. He said this, Thus, an intimate knowledge of God, know him better, an intimate knowledge of God enables believers to experience the incredible greatness of God's power available to them. The power is needed to survive the satanic and worldly systems that surround us. So as we know God better, we will know his power better. We'll know better. And we can appropriate that power better in our lives so that we might live the lives he wants us to live. I can be the husband he wants me to be in, in Ephesians chapter 5. You can be the wife God wants you to be in Ephesians chapter 5. We can raise in our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as he's going to talk about later on. We can fight the good fight. We can wage spiritual warfare. We can say no to the world, the flesh, and the devil. We can have victory over circumstances. We can have victory over bad habits or addictions. We can, we can say no to temptation. We can say no to a lot of things and say yes to the right things according to the power that works within us. So here are three things that, that he wants us to, to know better. Know him better and know, know better. The hope of his calling, the riches of his inheritance, and the greatness of his power. And then he goes on to explain this power, this, the greatness of God's power at work. God's power demonstrated in four different ways. One, we have the power of resurrection. These in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's resurrection power. The power of God put on display in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We'll celebrate that here in just a month in true form. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There is nothing and no one 
in this created realm that has the power of resurrection. Now, we've got some mighty good doctors, and we've got some strong medicine these days, but it's all they can do to keep people alive for a while. But even that's a losing battle. Everybody dies in the end. We can't defeat death, and we don't know the first thing about raising somebody from the dead. Nobody has that kind of power. Nobody, no thing. But God can raise the dead. And it's demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God hath raised him from the dead. Resurrection power. Paul said in, over in Philippians, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. I want to know him better. I want to know that power in my life. The power, resurrection power of God. And then not only is it demonstrated in resurrection, it's the power of exaltation. He brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We talked about heavenly places before, the heavenly realm, this unseen spiritual reality. We're going to see more of that as we go through Ephesians. So this unseen spiritual reality, spiritual realm. God has raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand. The right hand is the place of highest honor. It is a place of authority. It is a place of rule. Jesus said in, in, the, in the preface to the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Over in, in Hebrews, it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. Colossians 3.1 says, Therefore, if or since you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ did, seated at the right hand of God. So God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. The power of exaltation. And then, not only do we have the power of resurrection, the power of exaltation, but then there's the power of subjection as well. Notice, God has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, exaltation, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. God has highly exalted him above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. Now those are four words that can describe human authority structures. Human government, powers, all that. That can describe human government, but those are also four buzzwords in the spiritual realm, the heavenly places. They can describe angelic hierarchies of power. They can describe demonic hierarchies of power. We'll again, we'll, we'll get more glimpses into the spiritual realm as we go through. Bottom line is this, that in the human world and in the non-human world, in the natural realm and in the supernatural realm, Jesus is Lord. God has put all things in subjection under him. Every vestige of authority, spiritual, human, or otherwise. And then just to catch, make sure we got everything involved, he goes on to say, and every name that is named. Remember Paul said he's given him a name which is above every name? Every name that is named. Now remember we're in Ephesus. We're talking to these Ephesians. They live in a place of magic. Remember? They burned all their magic books and incantations. In exorcisms, you needed to name the demon to, to know that you're exercising, to do it right. Or in magical incantations and spells and all that, naming whatever spirit you're trying to manipulate. That was part, part, of, part of it. Paul just gets it all in there. All power, all rule, all dominion, all authority, every name, everything has put in, been put in subjection under Jesus' feet. 
Klein Snodgrass said this, Whatever powers exist, real or imaginary, human or non-human, they are all subject to Christ. The powers are not in control. He is. The powers are not equal combatants on the stage of life. They are subject. And the only one in control is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the absolute sovereign authority. Everything, everyone, everywhere, in every time, in this age and in the age to come, is put under His feet. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's power. (laughs) The power of resurrection, the power of exaltation, the power of subjection. Listen to what William Klein said about this. If God could reverse for Jesus the universal finality of death and exalt him to the position of highest authority in the universe, then nothing is too difficult for him. Christians have this kind of resource available to them. And because believers are raised with Christ and possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ, they have access to the throne room of power. Paul prays that his readers will seize this available capacity. In other words, know it better, see it better, know it better. And then there's also the power of participation. Notice he says he's put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church. This is for the benefit of the church. He's the head over all things to the church, which is his body in the fullness of him who fills all in all. And all through Ephesians, Paul's going to tell us about the body of Christ, the body. We are his body, the church. He is the head The church is his body. The head is united with the body. You can't separate them. (laughs) The head and body go together. And the body gets life from the head. The body gets direction from the head. He is our head. We are his body. And we are bodily united, connected with him. It could be said that we participate with him. We participate in his life. He is our life. We participate in his reign. We are part of his kingdom. And so we participate with him in his kingdom, in his realm, in the church. We're his body. We're united to him. And he fills the body. It's his life that fills the body and makes the body alive. It's his body and he fills the body. In him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And he fills the church. And it's all to the benefit of the church. That's the surpassing greatness of his power i pray that the eyes of your heart might be opened that you'd be filled with light that you might see these spiritual realities they're already there you just need to see them better and know them better and appreciate them better and appropriate them better into your lives and what does that look like what is what's the application what do we do with this well number one do you know him you need to know him know him savingly do you know the lord jesus christ again that's what it means to be saved you can do all kinds of religious things and not know him do you know him in a personal vital dynamic relationship that shapes and defines your entire life if not you need jesus christ and i invite you to come to him this morning and in just a little bit we're gonna have a hymn of decision come to come to me and say preacher i want to know him i want to know god i want to be saved however you want to say it and we'd love to pray with you But make sure you know him. And if you know him savingly, do you know him increasingly? Are you growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are you growing in that relationship with him? Do you know him better than you did a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago? Are you growing in that knowledge? 
Grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Know Him. Know Him better. Once you know Him better, you want to see better. You want to know better. What do we need to know better? The hope of His calling. In other words, live in light of our hope. When you see better and know better the hope of His calling, that will change the way you live your life now. When you have the hope of our future in Christ, that will change what you do today. Let me just ask you a question. Do you believe that this life is all there is? And when you die, you're dead and that's it, there's no more. Or do you believe that there is a long eternity? That there is life after this life? Well, that's what the Bible shows us. That's the hope of His calling. Well, if you believe that there is an eternity, that changes the way you live today. Do you believe that when you <laughs> that one day you're going to die and you're going to be raised again and you're going to face the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment? You better believe it because the Bible says it. <laughs> it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. If you believe that one day you're going to stand before Jesus Christ, the righteous judge who judges the living and the dead, that ought to change the way you live today because you want to live in light of that day of judgment. If you believe that that you can lay up for yourselves riches in heaven, that you can get rich toward God, treasures in heaven, that God will reward faithful Christian ministry today done in His name and His power for His glory, then I ought to change the way you live today. I want to live for Him. I want to be faithful. I want to serve Him. I want to invest in eternity. That changes the way I live today because of the hope of His calling. You believe that, that lost people are lost without hope and without God in the world and destined to a devil's hell. If you believe that, that changes the way you live today because you want to tell people about Jesus Christ. They need to hear the gospel. People need to be saved. Oh, you see, we need to live in light of the hope of His calling. The hope that we have, the future that we know is coming, should affect the way we live in the present. Not only that, we also want to live in light of His valuation. Live in light of His valuation. What He says about us. The riches of his inheritance in the saints. That is to say, he loves us. We have an inheritance, but we are an inheritance. He loves us. He values us. He chose us. He redeemed us. He seals us. And we are his inheritance. This gets back to that Christian identity. Your identity, your value, your worth is wrapped up in your identity. Your worth does not come from how much money you have, what you do for a living, your skill set, your looks, your popularity, or any of those things. Your worth as a person comes from God's valuation of you. And God loves you, and Christ died for you. Now that should provoke a sense of humility. So I don't go strutting around saying, hey, look at me. I'm amazed that God would look at me. Remember Paul? The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, the chief of sinners, and gave himself up for me. That, that, that inspires humility. That inspires a sense of security. I'm not nothing. God doesn't hate me. God loves me and values me, and Christ died for me. Again, that doesn't foster pride. That fosters humility and, and a sense of security, and it inspires worship. I'm going to worship that kind of a God. And I want to live for that kind of God. I want to serve the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Well, I'll live in light of the glorious, uh, the riches of his inheritance. And then live in light of his power. Live in light 
of his power. Clinton Arnold said this, All believers struggle with the tendency to live the Christian life in their own power, not by the power of God. We all do that. I mean, we're all guilty. Oh, I got this. I can live the Christian life. It ain't hard. I can be a good boy. And, and it takes five minutes and we fall flat on our faces. <laughs> we fail every time. It does, we, we can't get through the day. The Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. But according to the surpassing greatness of His power that works within us, we can live the Christian life. I can be the man He wants me to be. You can be the woman He wants you to be. We can do the things He wants us to do. We can live the Christian life. We can live holy lives. Again, we can have victory over sin, over temptation against the world, the flesh, and the devil according to His power. Man, that's a prayer, isn't it? 169 words of power-packed praying. That's a prayer that we could pray for any church, any believer, including ourselves. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be open. One, that God would give you wisdom. It comes from Him that he would reveal himself to you, that you might know him better. And as you know him better, he would open the eyes of your heart that you might see better, that you would know better the hope of his calling, the inheritance of his saints, and then also the, the greatness of his power. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. What a power-packed prayer. Lord, we pray this for ourselves and for our congregation this day. Lord, may this be the prayer of our hearts and our lives before you. Lord, we thank you for who we are and what we have in Christ Jesus. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see it better, that we would know better, that we would appropriate these truths, these spiritual realities better in our lives for our benefit and for your glory. God, I especially pray for the one who's never been saved, whether they come from a religious and church background or non-religious and non-church background, help them to see they need Jesus Christ, that they need to know you. That is eternal life. Lord, just take charge of this time of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.